0: But I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Herb, Herb Street, Street is, is on the phone. Here. ready for we. the podcast. Yeah. The America, a, the sports podcast. Is it? it is Monday, January 24th, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the Erotora Sports Podcast. Here's the deal. Here's the rundown for today's show. You guys and girls know I don't talk a ton of NFL on the Erotora Sports Podcast. But I'd also be lying if I said that I did not watch all four divisional round games this weekend. If all four divisional round games were not all timers, and if I just glossed over them as if they didn't happen. You guys and girls spent all weekend watching the NFL, just like I did, and so I want to share a couple thoughts on each of the four games. I thought all four were fascinating. All four came down to the final play of the game. Really fun conversation about the NFL weekend that was, and then we'll get into some of the traditional stuff that we do here on the Aaron Tour Sports Podcast. We'll talk a little bit about the weekend that was in college basketball, Kentucky, Auburn, Saturday, Great game between two of what I believe the top five teams in college basketball are. We'll talk a little bit about that game. Kentucky gets banged up. Auburn gets the victory. We'll wrap. Did you see what happened in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Wake Forest, 22-point win over North Carolina. Hubert Davis, not saying he was the wrong hire, but in a world where LSU, where USC went out and crushed the college football coaching carousel, Did North Carolina make a mistake by not going out and doing a traditional coaching search? I think it's at least worth considering as North Carolina falls to 12-6 and overall. With that said, though, you know what I'm going to say? Let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is that we had an all-time classic weekend in the NFL, four divisional round games, Four games that came down to the final play of the game. Three game winning field goals. One overtime victory for the Kansas City Chiefs over the Buffalo Bills. Spoiler alert. And I just feel like, listen, I know I talk a lot of college sports on this show. I know I love to talk college football. I know I love to talk college basketball. We'll talk college basketball over the final 40 or so minutes of this show. But I would be remiss if I did not talk about an all-time Instant classic weekend in the NFL. And what I would say is this is that one, it was absolutely incredible. You know how good this weekend of the NFL playoffs were? This is how good this weekend of the NFL playoffs were. Think about this the San Francisco 49ers go to Lambeau Field on Saturday night. They trail by seven points with under five minutes to go. They win in regulation to potentially end Aaron Rodgers' career as a Green Bay Packer, that was at best the third best game of the weekend. That's how good this weekend of NFL football was. And so as I think back to this weekend, I want to just quickly talk about all four games, share my kind of quick opinion on it, and also I want to explain to you why I think the big story coming out of all four of those games is not actually the story that we should be talking about. And so let's get into it, let's talk about it, let's discuss it, because as I said Four all-time classic games. We'll work our way forward, backward. In other words, we will start with a game that just finished about, I don't know, half hour to 45 minutes before I started recording this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Oh, I don't know, an all-time classic between the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. And again, this was just an absolute all-timer between two guys that I believe will be the faces of the NFL over the next 10 or so years of uh, of what is NFL football. We already know about Patrick Mahomes. We already know that he won a Super Bowl. We already know that he has made three straight AFC Championship games prior to this year. That's now four in a row. We know he's played in two Super Bowls. We know he's won one of them. We know he's on every commercial. He's the Mahomey, Patrick Mahomes. But I'll be real. I came away from this game not only impressed by him, but also impressed by Josh Allen, right? Josh Allen, the young gun, he made the AFC Championship game a year ago. They fall short. He makes a ton of money in the offseason. And you start to think, this is the second highest paid player in the history of American sports, of American professional sports. Josh Allen is the second highest paid player ever. Can this guy deliver? And the answer is yeah. We just saw an unbelievable game in which how about this for some context on how great the game on Sunday night was between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. There were four, just, just take out overtime, four scores in the final two minutes of regulation of this game. The Bills score a touchdown to take the lead with 154 to go. They go up 29 26. Then the Chiefs score with 102 left. Tyreek Hill, that big play, 33 29. Then the Buffalo Bills score again with 13 seconds to go. They take the lead with 13 seconds to go. KC does enough to get into field goal range, and KC wins this game in overtime. And like I said, to me, the story of the game was that we have two super young, super dynamic quarterbacks. We know about Patrick Mahomes. He's been talked about at length. You know who Josh Allen reminded me of? He reminded me of when you play backyard football in your neighborhood and there's one kid that is just bigger and stronger and tougher than everybody else you know who I'm talking about the dude that has the beard when he's 11 or 12 years old he's got the beard coming in you can't eat your voice and he's just running over dudes that was Josh Allen who made all these plays late in the game what I do not think the story of the game was though and I do think it's going to be a conversation that comes up on Monday is the overtime rules. And to me, this was what quickly became the story of this game. As, as I said, four different scoring plays in the final two minutes to force overtime, and then we know what happened from there. Kansas City wins the coin toss, Kansas City drives the length of the field, Kansas City scores a touchdown as Patrick Mahomes throws the ball to Travis Kelsey, eight yard touchdown pass to win the game in overtime. And I saw all sorts of outrage all sorts of frustration, all sorts of, oh my goodness, how could this be how we end play? Let me say this. It's not a perfect system, but I have no fundamental issue with it. It's not a perfect system, but I believe that all things considered, that is not why the Buffalo Bills lost this game. First off, if you want to know why the Buffalo Bills lost this game, well, two things. One, as I said a minute ago, They took a lead with 13 seconds to go. It's not as though they had a lead and they were holding on for dear life with 13 seconds to go. They took the lead with 13 seconds to go and could not stop Patrick Mahomes from making a couple plays that led to a Harrison-Bucker game-tying field goal that forced overtime. Second of all, we all know how overtime works, and I'll say this. The system that is currently in place is better than what it was two, three, four, five years ago. Remember when Donovan McNabb, and Donovan's my guy. I used to work with Donovan McNabb back at Fox Sports Sports back in the day. Remember when Donovan McNabb didn't understand how overtime worked? And Donovan McNabb said, I didn't know you could tie a game? Well, since then, they've changed the overtime rules. They've changed the overtime rules so that if you force a field goal on the opening drive of overtime, you get the ball back. And so to me, I saw a whole lot of, how can this end a season? How can this end, how could this do that? Well, if you're the Buffalo Bills, here's an idea. Force a field goal. If you force a field goal against the Kansas City Chiefs, then you get the ball back with a chance to win. To me, I'm not saying the better team won. I'm not saying the greatest team won. I've been kind of out on the Kansas City Chiefs all year. But you know the rules, and everybody's telling me, oh, it's not fair, it's not this, it's not that. I am just telling you straight up that to me, I did not think the ending of the Kansas City Chiefs-Buffalo-Bills game was unfair. I thought the Bills, first of all, 13 seconds left, they took the lead in regulation. They had a chance to stop KC in regulation, could not. KC got the game tying field goal, then they got the game winning field goal in overtime. I have no fundamental issue with the Kansas City Chiefs winning this game, and I have no fundamental issue with the overtime rules as they're currently in place. Let's go to the game before that on Sunday afternoon. It was, of course, the Los Angeles Rams versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Los Angeles Rams travel to Tampa Bay. We all know the story. Tampa Bay, reigning Super Bowl champs. Tom Brady, 44 years old. And first of all, let me say this, guys and girls. And tell me if, you're, if I'm wrong on this. You guys can tweet me at Aaron underscore Torres. DM me at AaronTorresPod. Did you see this story that broke out of nowhere on Sunday morning that, oh, my goodness, this might be the last year for Tom Brady? And this is one. I'm not claiming that I cover the NFL. I'm not claiming that I have any interesting insight that anybody else doesn't have. But that one definitely threw me for a loop. But I just bring it up to say that all of a sudden you go into this game and the stakes in this game are a lot different than what everybody else, than than what we thought they were even a week or two ago, a day or two ago. I saw the fact that Bruce Arians was asked about Tom Brady's future on like Wednesday of last week and was like, yeah, we expect to have Tom Brady back. Then he was asked about it after the game and was like, yeah, you know, it's Tom's decision. And so to me, I think there's a possibility as small as it might be, that might have been Tom Brady's last game in the NFL. Don't think it was but think it's at least a possibility as all of a sudden this report popped up out of nowhere is there some kind of injury is Giselle putting pressure on him i do not know but this report to me seemingly came out of nowhere now in terms of this game listen i got caught up with uh, i got caught up in this game in the same way that you guys and girls did i got caught up in this game in the fact that the Los Angeles Rams at one point early in the second half we were up 27 to three and almost blew this game. And I got caught up in the same way that you guys and girls did. And I was the same guy on the couch that was sitting there saying, oh my goodness, Tom Brady is going to do it again. First of all, you have the possession when Tom Brady and the Bucks are down 27 to six you have the possession late in the third quarter, 27-13, excuse me. They're still down two scores early in the fourth quarter. You have the possession where Brady throws it over the top. Mike Evans gets hit. You think it's going to be a pass interference. You think it's going to be a uh, targeting call. You think that the Bucks are going to get the ball on the goal line. And then all of a sudden, of course, the, the call is ruled a targeting but at the same time, because of the way the rule is structured, Mike Evans does not get the first down. Instead, it's a turnover on downs and the you know the, the, the penalty is assessed on the play after. And so I bring it up to say, like, even before Tampa made the run, you kind of saw the scenario where Tom Brady and the Bucks were going to make the run. And you're like, oh, my goodness, Tom Brady's going to do this again. And then you know what happened? Tom Brady does it again. He gets the ball back. He hits the deep pass to Mike Evans. From there, Los Angeles gets the ball back. From there, Los Angeles is running the ball right at Tampa Bay to try to run out the clock as much as they can. What happens? Cam Akers fumbles the ball in the state where he played college football at Florida State. Tampa gets the ball back. Fourth down, Leonard Fournette. We think he's going to run up the middle. He cuts to the outside scores to tie the game at 27 apiece. Los Angeles, from there, you know what happens. Stafford over the top to Cooper Cup. Catch, field goal, game over. Los Angeles Rams advance to the NFC Championship game. To me, though, again, this is similar to what I just said a minute ago. The game, everyone's going to talk about the incredible comeback by Tampa. Tom Brady, oh, my God, he's going to do it again. Tom Brady, never bet against him. L.A. making two plays, and then it's like, boom, the game is over. And you can go find a tweet for me, by the way. I literally tweeted, "What the f did I just see?" Excuse my language. I didn't even swear, but I'm just thinking about it now. What the f did I just see? But you know what the story of the game to me was? It was this. And if you listen to this podcast, you know. Not sure if you heard. I picked Georgia football to win the national championship game. How about my dogs? Well, you're probably sitting here thinking, "Why, Torres? Stop parking about the dogs. Why did you pick the dogs?" Why are you bringing it up on a day when Tampa lost to the Los Angeles Rams? Well, it's because it's pretty simple. Because to me, we focus on the big, bold kind of headline names. We focus on in the Tampa Bay-Los Angeles game. We focus on Tom Brady versus Matt Stafford. We focus on Cooper Cup. We focus on Leonard Fournette. We focus on Mike Evans. We focus on this. We focus on that. You know who won that game for the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday afternoon? It wasn't Cooper Cup. It wasn't Matthew Stafford. It was the defensive front. And that's why I bring up the Georgia Bulldogs. Because Georgia all year, ultimately Stetson Bennett had to make some plays late for Georgia. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Georgia won because their defense was incredible all year. Their defense was unreal. And all season long, it allowed Stetson Bennett to not have to be on the college level. Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, whoever, defense took over, defense won games, and then when you needed the quarterback late, guess what happens, the quarterback makes plays, well did you watch that Rams game against the Bucks? because it was kind of the same thing, I watched that game, and for the first three and a half quarters of that game, you know who was the MVP, the defensive front, you know who was the MVP, Aaron Donald, great name, great name Aaron, Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald was the MVP, Von Miller was the MVP, Leonard Floyd was the MVP, and then it was late that the Tampa Bay Bucks made their run, and that the Los Angeles Rams with Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup made that game-winning play that set up the game-winning field goal. And so I only bring it up to just say, this is not to discredit Matthew Stafford, it's not to say he's not incredible, Matthew Stafford, by the way, played all those years with the Detroit Lions, Matthew Stafford in the last 50 years, guess what? In the last two weeks, Matthew Stafford has more wins with the Los Angeles Rams in the playoffs than the Detroit Lions have over the last 50 seasons as a franchise dating back to the 1960s. But I only bring it up to just simply say everyone is going to talk about that play from Stafford to Cooper Cup. But I'm just telling you, it was the defensive front that got the job done. Congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams who will host the San Francisco 49ers. In the NFC Championship game next Sunday, San Francisco goes to Lambeau Field, beats Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. And like I said, you want some perspective on how crazy this weekend was. Just think about this at its most basic level. San Francisco goes to Lambeau Field, goes to a place in the snow where Aaron Rodgers seemingly never loses, except apparently in the playoffs. And what happens? They're down. A touchdown with under five minutes to go, block a punt, score a touchdown, block a field goal in the first half to keep it a one-score game, and then late in the game, do enough, drive, score the game-winning field goal. And so when I think about this game, a couple things immediately come to mind. First of all, it is a victory, a vindication for special teams, right? You talk to these football guys. You talk to people that know football. Oh, it's a three-phase game. It's not offense. It's not defense. It's all three phases. Offense, defense, special teams. Well, guess who played at least two phases on Saturday? It was the Green Bay Packers. It was the San Francisco 49ers against the Green Bay Packers in Lambeau Field. Because San Francisco does not win this game if it is not for the special teams. As I said, they're down 7-3 early in the game. They're down 7-3 going into the half. They are in a situation where late in the first half, Jimmy Garoppolo throws an interception. They could fall down 10-0 in that situation after Jimmy Garoppolo throws that interception. And what happens? Green Bay drives the length of the field. Green Bay set lines up for a field goal, and that gets blocked. And so it's a victory for special teams because they block a field goal to keep themselves in the game. They block a punt to uh, tie the game late in the game. And they, of course, kick the game-winning field goal late in the game. Robbie goal 45 yards as time expires. But, again, there's a couple things that stand out to me. First of all, vindication for the defense because everyone all day long on Sunday – And Saturday night talked about the special teams this and the block field goal and the block punt and the block this and the block that. You know who put Aaron Rodgers on his butt at home a bunch of times? The San Francisco 49ers. I think it's easy to forget. Five sacks for the San Francisco 49ers. They held the the Green Bay Packers to 67 yards, rushing on 20 carries, basically about three yards and change per carry. And so everyone's gonna focus on the special teams, block punt, block field goal early in the 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 late in the second late in the second quarter, late in the in the first half. You know what won that game? The defense won that game. And now San Francisco is advancing to play the Los Angeles Rams, who they just beat at SoFi Stadium about two weeks ago. In terms of Aaron Rodgers, in terms of Green Bay, it's interesting. I was on Fox Sports Radio. I was hosting Fox Sports Radio when this game went final. It is insane to think about, and it was a crazy game. Because as I was hosting it, there was never a moment where I really felt like, you know what, the Green Bay Packers are going to lose this game. Even when the game stayed close, the game stayed close, the game stayed close, it was always like, they're going to find a way to win. They're going to hold on. They're going to make enough plays. It's going to be ugly. Because that is what the Green Bay Packers have done all year. Never forget, even within the last few weeks, I was on air Christmas Day We talked about it on the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Remember when I talked about, did the NFL steal the NBA from Christmas Day? Well, it's because we were all watching the Packers versus the Browns on Christmas Day. And the Packers win 24-22 in a game they easily could have lost. And then, a week later, they play the Baltimore Ravens. No Lamar Jackson. They play Tyler Huntley. They win by one in Baltimore. And so I bring it up because the, the, the Green Bay Packers have been playing with fire all year. All season long, there were many, 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 many games that they could have lost. They lose on the final day of the season to the Detroit Lions. Aaron Rodgers only plays a half, but I bring it up because everyone's going to talk about the special teams, but I thought it was the 49ers' defense, and I thought it was the, uh, I it was the Green Bay Packers thinking that they were in control when they really weren't. In terms of Aaron Rodgers' future, I think it's fascinating because, like I said, I was on air when Matt LaFleur went to the podium and when Aaron Rodgers went to the podium. And what I will say about that whole situation is this. Seems pretty dicey, right? Seems pretty dicey that Aaron Rodgers might not be coming back to Green Bay. He talked about how the organization is in flux. He talked about how there's a lot of players that are coming up at the end of their contracts. And I'll say a couple things. One, didn't really sound like a guy that's excited to come back. Two, what I'll say beyond that, if this was the end for Aaron Rodgers, and I thought a lot of people brought this up, so I'm not claiming it it as my own thought. But imagine having Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers for 30 plus years. I mean, basically one of the two of them has been a quarterback in the Green Bay Packers organization for about 30 plus years, and you won two Super Bowls, and you've only made two other Super Bowls besides that. I know it sounds like like Minnesota Vikings fan, um, you know. Seattle Seahawks, I like, like there's a lot of franchises, the New York Jets, there's a lot of franchises that would take four Super Bowl appearances over a 30-year period and two wins, but you had Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers and you won two, it kind of feels disappointing. Now in terms of Aaron Rodgers' future, I'll say this. It doesn't seem as though he is in a huge rush to make any announcement. I know he said to be before free agency, but that's another two months. Be interesting to see what he does. Doesn't feel like he wants to go to Green Bay, A return to Green Bay. I don't think he wants to retire. I think he likes being a public figure. I think he likes having a platform. I think he likes, and this is not to get political, I think he likes sharing his opinions on vaccination and Fauci and the president and this and that. I don't think that dude wants to go into retirement. I saw some people, oh, he'll go into retirement. I don't think he's going into retirement. Are you kidding me? I think he likes being an NFL quarterback having a platform and having a place to talk about whatever the heck he wants. And I know you can say, oh, he'll go on Pat McAfee, he'll do this, he'll do that. I get that. I'm just saying I think he's back next year and I'm not positive it's with Green Bay. Now in terms of where it could be remains to be seen. And what I think about when I think about Aaron Rodgers, when I think about his future is this. Go back two years. Fox Sports Radio. I was on air on Wild Card Weekend, when Tom Brady threw an interception as a member of the New England Patriots to end a game against the Tennessee Titans. We'll get to the Titans in a minute, but I bring it up because at that point, it was clear that Tom Brady was probably done in New England. And at that point, it felt like for sure that Tom Brady was definitively going to the Los Angeles Chargers if he was going to leave the New England Patriots. And so I bring it up because with Aaron Rodgers guess what? Think about all the possibilities that Aaron Rodgers, if he does not play in Green Bay next year. I don't think he's retiring. Let's assume it's not Green Bay. A lot of people are saying the Denver Broncos. A lot of people are saying the Pittsburgh Steelers. But think about this. Two years ago, was anyone mentioning the Tampa Bay Bucks until like a day or two before it happened? And so Aaron Rodgers, to me, it's almost like what's going on with Caleb Williams in college football, right? And we've talked a lot about Caleb Williams on this show. But Caleb Williams on the college level is so good that if Caleb Williams calls your school and says, I want to come there, I want to compete for your starting quarterback job, even if you have an established quarterback, you got to take Caleb Williams. And so I think it's the same with Aaron Rodgers. And so I don't think we have any clarification on what he wants to do, where he wants to go, how he wants to end his career. But I think the idea that it's only going to be one or two places outside of Green Bay, No. If the Las Vegas Raiders want to make a change of quarterback, they got to accept Aaron Rodgers. Um, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but the point I'm trying to make is there is a lot of teams that if Aaron Rodgers says, "I want to come play for you guys," I mean, they got to consider it, right? They got to consider it. Whether it is the Tennessee Titans who we're going to talk about in a minute, whether it is the Indianapolis Colts, whether it is the Las Vegas Raiders as I just said, whether it is the Denver Broncos, whether it is the Washington football team, whether it is, by the way, the San Francisco 49ers, you think Trey Lance is the answer? If Aaron Rodgers wants to come play for you, you say yes to Aaron Rodgers. So I bring it up because Aaron Rodgers, I'm not totally sold that he's played his last game in Green Bay, but I'm sort of convinced. And what I think is gonna be the most interesting story in sports, next three, four, five weeks, where does he end up? And that's gonna be fascinating to watch. Finally, the last game. And like I said, all four games, I think there's a storyline that people are talking about, and then I think there's the real storyline behind the, you know, the story behind the story. And what I would say from the first game, as Cincinnati goes to Tennessee and wins nineteen sixteen, I think everyone's going to talk about Joe Burrow. I think everyone's going to talk about Jamar Chase. nineteen sixteen. Evan McPherson went up to Joe Burrow. We're going to the AFC Championship game, all that good stuff. And Joe Burrow was great. Joe Burrow made all the plays that he had to to make to win that game. But I bring it up, because the story of the game really wasn't Joe Burrow. It's not that he was bad, but he wasn't like Joe Montana in his prime. He wasn't like Tom Brady. He wasn't Aaron. He was fine. He also got sacked nine times, and that's a credit to the Tennessee defense. To me, the story of the game, it goes without saying, was Ryan Tannehill. Three interceptions, first play of the game, last play of the game, first play of the second half. And to me, it goes back to the most fundamental thing about Tennessee Titans. And I don't know how many of you guys and girls listen to my Fox Sports radio show on Saturday nights. But my my Saturday radio partner, Jason Martin, lives in Nashville. Love Jason, no disrespect to Jason, no discredit to Jason. I love working with him. But I remember at the beginning of the season, talking to Jason about it. And people were talking about the, the Titans as a Super Bowl contender. And I said, they're not a contender. I just said, why? I live in Nashville. They're great. They're this. They're that. And the entire argument for the Titans as a Super Bowl contender was this. They play in a bad division, and they traded for a 33-year-old wide receiver named Julio Jones. And I said, I don't care how bad the division is. I don't care if you get the number one seed. And by the way, this is not me bragging because I get stuff t- wrong all the time. Where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I talk about the stuff I get right all all The stuff I get wrong all the time. But I said, I remember saying, I don't care how bad the division is. I don't care how many games you win in the regular season. At some point, you are going to have to face a real quarterback, a real team, and you're not going to be able to beat him because Ryan Tannehill is not a quarterback that can win you a Super Bowl. It'd be like picking Oregon to win the college football playoff. Yeah, you can pick them, and you can say, well, they're not going to play anybody in the regular season. It's like, yeah, but they're going to get to the playoff, and they're going to play Alabama. They're going to get to the playoff, and they're going to play Clemson. They're going to get to the playoff and play Georgia. they get to the playoff and play, um, you know, I don't know, Oklahoma, whoever. And at some point, they're going to have to beat real teams. That was my argument with the Tennessee Titans. And so what happens? They get to the playoffs, they're at home, and they lose this game. And I think the Titans, out of all these teams that lost, I think they're arguably the most interesting one. Because you look at them, they got a tough decision to make. Now I know financially it probably doesn't make sense to get rid of Ryan Tannehill. But think about it. Derrick Henry just turned 28. A.J. Brown, mid to late 20s. It's what I talked about with the Cowboys a few days ago. The Cowboys window is right now. You have to make a coaching move right now because if you bring back Mike McCarthy, you got two years left where Trevon Diggs, C.D. Lamb, and Micah Parsons are all in their rookie contracts. Well, guess what? Derrick Henry's 28. A.J. Brown is in his mid-20s. And this defense ain't getting any younger. And your Super Bowl window is right now. And so to me, I would argue the Titans are actually the single most fascinating story that came out of this weekend. What do they do? Do they bring back Ryan Tanhill? If they don't, how do they justify getting rid of him, and who do they bring in? I know it's probably not realistic for the Titans to get rid of Ryan Tannehill, but we've seen it. Three straight years, get to the playoffs, in position, can't get over the hump because they don't have the quarterback. Lose to Joe Burrow this year, lose to Lamar Jackson last year, lose to Patrick Mahomes the year before, and I will be fascinated to see what they do. Whew. All right. What an opening segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Listen... I thought I was going to talk NFL for what? 15 minutes, 18 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. 29 minutes of NFL football content. But it was a great weekend. There wasn't just one game that I could gloss over. Forgive me. I love sports. I was watching the games. Forgive me. This is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. And I do want to talk about the weekend that was in college hoops. Auburn, Kentucky have a bunch of takeaways from that one. Really fun game. Bum that Kentucky wasn't at full strength. Then from there, We'll talk a little bit about North Carolina. Your boy, Hubert Davis. Did North Carolina really do what they should have done in their coaching search? We'll come back. We'll talk about all that. Fun NFL conversation. Plenty of college hoops. Coming up, Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our sponsor and your ladies' favorite sponsor. Yeah, I'm talking about Manscaped. The worldwide leader in men's below-the-waist grooming, fellas, it's 2022. New Year's resolutions. And if you have New Year's resolutions, and we all do, one of them better be to clean up that mess downstairs. Let's be honest, you're a slob, it's disgusting. Well, here's the good news. You can join the millions of men worldwide and use Manscaped and Manscaped.com. And here's the best part. If you go to Manscaped.com, Just because you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, they love me over there at Manscaped, use promo code TORRES on Manscaped.com for any product that you order. You get 20% off plus free shipping. And ladies, as I always tell you, the promo code works for you too. Your man's embarrassed. Your man doesn't think he has a problem. We both know he has a problem, but he doesn't want to talk about his problem. You go to Manscaped.com. You can order the products yourself. With that said, let me tell you a little about some of what Manscaped has going on here in 2022. First of all, I have told you about the Performance Package 4.0 many times. It is a package of all Manscaped's best tools for what's going on below the belt. The Performance Package 4.0 includes the Lawnmower 4.0, which is their official, their best trimmer yet. It's an electric trimmer, advanced skin safe technology that reduces nicks and cuts down there, plus there is a 4K LED spotlight to help you get to all those hard to reach places. Fellas, we've all used the competitors. It's terrifying. It's scary. You need a band aid. Uh, it doesn't work out well. No problem with manscaped, especially if you're using the lawnmower 4.0. But that's not. The, here's the thing: the performance package 4.0 isn't just the lawnmower 4.0. Beyond the lawnmower 4.0, also comes with the crop preserver ball deodorant, the crop reviver ball toner. So after you give that shave, use the crop preserver ball deodorant, crop reviver ball toner. You're gonna look good. You're gonna smell good. And on top of all that, you got the Lawnmower 4.0. You got the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Ball Toner. Manscaped is also going to give you a free travel bag and anti-chafing boxer briefs. It doesn't get better than that. That's the Performance Package 4.0. On top of that, I should also mention, fellas, I told you about this during the holidays. Manscaped also recently released their ultra-premium body wash. I am just telling you. Bring it in the shower. Rub it, rub a little bit of it on you. It's body wash. That's what you do with body wash. Use the Manscaped body wash. It is. It smells so good. I'm telling you. Uh, literally, I brought it out on Christmas Eve at the Torres house. Well, showing the ladies. Uh, look how good this smells. The fellas are saying, how do I order it? Well, here's how you order it. Go to manscaped.com. You use promo code TORRES. Performance package 4.0. Beyond that, the brand new ultra premium body wash. It's going to leave you smelling great. Everything Thanks to Manscaped Manscaped.com. Again, Manscaped.com, use promo code Taurus, 20% off, plus free shipping, everything on the website if you use the promo code Taurus. Fellas, ladies, promo code works both ways. I want to thank you. Your balls will thank you. Manscaped.com, promo code Taurus. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. Thank you again to our partners, Manscaped, Manscaped.com. Use promo code TORES, 20% off plus free shipping. Fellas, ladies, that body wash, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, mwah, mwah. You'll never smell better. That's all I'm saying, manscaped.com, use promo code TORES. With that said, let's get back, uh, let's get back on track. I'm a little off track here, a little off topic, but let's talk a little college hoops, and listen, College Hoops, I said this on Friday, I think College Hoops understands that these two weekends during the NFL playoffs, wildcard weekend, divisional weekend, there's just not a ton of big games. College Hoops knows it can't compete with the NFL, knows it can't compete with the NFL playoffs with Joe Burrow, with whoever, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, whatever. And so there were only two matchups of ranked opponents this weekend. Uh, Not a huge slate. One of the matchups of ranked opponents, Tennessee LSU. LSU was down about 11 guys, so I don't really even feel the need to talk about it. Not discrediting Tennessee's win. I know Tennessee fans don't like Will Wade very much. I get all that. Uh, But I don't know that there's a ton to take away from that one. But I do want to talk about that other big game, the game that I really think captivated all of college basketball on Saturday morning, Saturday early afternoon, 12 central time on the Plains in Auburn, Alabama. Number two, Auburn. Number 12, Kentucky. Great game between two great teams, two great coaches, the potential national player of the year in Oscar Sheepway, the potential number one pick at Jabari Smith. And we all saw what happened and we all know what happened down there on the Plains as Auburn takes care of Kentucky 80 to 71 Saturday afternoon, the Auburn Tigers get one of the biggest home victories in school history, and I would argue in front of one of the craziest environments in school history as well. So let's talk about it, and what I would say is before I even get into the game itself, let me just say this. I say it all the time, but when I come on this show, I love to come on and give hot takes and strong opinions and this and that and, oh my God, make you think in a way that you've never thought before. That's my job. That's why I, I think you guys, guys and girls like me, think you appreciate me, whatever. This is one, I don't think there's any hot take. Auburn's really good. We're going to talk about them. Kentucky is really good. Kentucky had a few injuries. I'm not making an excuse for Kentucky. But the bottom line is both teams played really well. Auburn proved they're a top two, top three, if not the number one team in the country. Kentucky showed a ton of fight on the road, down two starting guards at one point in that game. And so I'm not gonna yell and scream that Auburn's this or Kentucky's not that because they lost. Sometimes you could just have Two good teams on a court, on a field, on a rink and ice, two great golfers, two great tennis players, whatever. One has to win, one has to lose. And so I don't have any like blistering hot takes that are going to tear up your speakers here on a Monday morning. But what I will say is I do have a couple thoughts on this game. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down because it was the single biggest game, not only of this weekend in college basketball, but I think you can argue one of the bigger games of the entire season in college basketball, again, between two top 15 teams and two teams that I think, frankly, are top five teams when fully healthy. First of all, before we even get into the game, shout out to Auburn fans. Shout out to the crowd. Shout out to college basketball. And I've talked about this so many times on this podcast over the last four, five, six months, but it is so great to have fans back in the stands at sporting events, and I've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast as well. I don't believe that there were any sports anywhere that were more impacted by no fans than college football and college basketball. College basketball, especially this weekend, we got to see on full display how great it is to have the fan element of college basketball. It wasn't just the nine, ten thousand people that showed up at Auburn Arena, couldn't get a ticket, couldn't get in for under three hundred dollars. It was the camp out the night before. It was students lining up 24 to 36 hours before the game just to get into the arena. They already had tickets, but they were trying to get the best seat possible, doing it on an evening when it was cold, when temperatures dipped below freezing. This is what college basketball is all about. And then on top of that, the atmosphere inside the arena at Auburn Arena on Saturday. I tweeted it out. You guys loved it. I cannot imagine the scenario where any parent of any top high school recruit could sit there and say, look at Auburn, look at the two coaches, Bruce Pearl, John Calipari, 10,000 screaming fans at Auburn Arena, I'm going to send my kid to the G League or overtime elite. It's another conversation for another day, but I just bring it up because the atmosphere at Auburn Arena was so incredible, the students were so incredible in the lead-up to that game, the atmosphere on campus all weekend was incredible, and so a ton of credit to Auburn fans, but a ton of credit to all of you fans, whether you're an Auburn fan, a Kentucky fan, a UConn fan, an Indiana fan, a UCLA fan, whatever, because fans are what make college basketball great, and I have a few examples this year of a better atmosphere than what Auburn is and how great college basketball can be with fans back in the stands. In terms of the game itself, let's start with Auburn. What I would say is this. Since Auburn beat Alabama about 10 days ago at Coleman Coliseum, I have made the argument and I have said that I believe that Auburn is the deserving number one team in the country. I thought they should have been number one in last week's poll. Gonzaga got the spot. And I think Saturday's game showed just how good this team is when they are fully clicking. Obviously, the big name on Auburn is Jabari Smith, the potential number one pick in the draft. But if you watch this game, Jabari Smith was really good, but it was the other guys that stepped up. Walker Kessler, transfer from North Carolina, McDonald's All-American. I'll be honest, I've watched Auburn a ton this year. I don't think that I realized how much he impacts games On both sides of the court until Saturday when Auburn hosted Kentucky. The fact that on offense he sets those high pick and rolls, sets up his guards, rolls to the basket, they can throw it up. It's an automatic two points. Nobody can guard him when he gets the ball within two feet of the basket at seven foot one. On defense, the way that he blocks and alters shots at the rim. I actually thought Oscar Sheboy did an incredible job to earn his 16 points and 14 rebounds because of the fact that Walker Kessler is such a menace defensively. You know, and he is the backbone for this all for for an Auburn defense that is truly elite and truly as good as anyone in the country. And it starts with Walker Kessler, who's averaging over four blocks per game this season. Uh, and, And again, it's just a credit to him, because as I said, I obviously knew he was talented. I'm not saying I didn't know that. But I don't think I realized how impactful he was, as he is currently second in the country in block shots. The only guy that has more per game is Jamarion Sharp, the kid from Western Kentucky, who's seven foot five, the tallest player in college basketball. So shout out Walker Kessler, shout out K.D. Johnson. I saw my buddy jo- uh, Justin Hawkinson, who covers Auburn for Auburn uh, uh, for their uh, their on three sports website. He said that K.D. Johnson, his energy is infectious. He said he's been around Auburn athletics for a decade. plus, Plus, now I think Justin's about my age, and he said he has not seen a single Auburn athlete impact teammates around him, fans around him, the coaching staff, whatever. He has not seen a player whose energy more impacts a team at Auburn since Cam Newton won the Heisman Trophy back in 2010. So that speaks to how good KD Johnson is, Walker Kessler, and of course, Jabari Smith. Jabari Smith, look, I'm a Paulo Banquero guy. I've I, I I've followed Paulo since he's a freshman in high school, sophomore in high school. That was the first time I saw him. Um, Jabari Smith should be the number one pick in the draft, and I mean that full offensive display. Uh, that full offensive skill set was on display: shooting threes, fadeaways. Kentucky had no answer, but nobody's had any answer. And I thought Kentucky did a better job on him than anybody else. And so again, with Auburn, there's no super hot take. I thought they should have been the number one team in the country last week. I definitively think they should be the number one team in the country this week. In terms of Kentucky, listen, there's nothing else to say. I'm bummed that for a second marquee road game for Kentucky, we did not get to see them at full strength. And Auburn fans, that's not discrediting the win. That's not saying you guys didn't deserve it. It's not saying that uh, Kentucky would have done. I don't know what would have happened if Kentucky had been at full strength. But if you follow Kentucky, you know the bottom line. They go to LSU about two weeks ago. LSU at the time was pretty close to full strength. LSU, of course, has not had Adam Miller all year, but they were healthy at the time, as healthy as they're going to be. And at at LSU, Kentucky has Severe Wheeler go down with a concussion early, does not come back. Ty Ty Washington gets cramps. He does not play the rest of the game starting about the early second half stage. And so Kentucky had to play at LSU without a true point guard and ended up losing that game in a game that was winnable. Well, what happened Saturday at Auburn Arena? Kentucky starting point guard, Severe Wheeler, briefly goes out after a hard collision with Walker Kessler. It wasn't a dirty play. Walker Kessler didn't do anything wrong. First of all, Kentucky, you got to work on calling out screens in practice. Severe Wheeler returns, but even before that, Ty Ty Washington, who has been at times their best player this year, goes down with what looked like a really bad sprained ankle. John Calipari has not talked about it, but again, I think Kentucky's one of the five best teams in college basketball, but I would love to see them at full strength for any stretch of the season because when they've been at full strength, you know what they did? They put up 107 points on Tennessee a few weeks ago, they put up 90 plus on North Carolina. And believe me, we are going to be talking about North Carolina in a minute. Um, But they put on a a ton. uh, They put up uh, 90 plus points on North Carolina. They have essentially dominated everybody when they are at full strength. And I'm not trying to discredit Auburn and what they did on Saturday. But man, I wish we could have seen Kentucky at full strength in that game. Uh, The refs obviously look. I'm not going to get into the refs. Kentucky fans are saying that the refs are the reason that Kentucky lost. And obviously Auburn had a favorable home whistle in that game. I don't, think it's, I don't think that's the reason that Kentucky lost that game, although Auburn did shoot 19 more free throws than them. I just think Auburn was the better team on that day at home in that arena. But again, my biggest takeaway, I think when Kentucky's at full strength, they're awesome. I wish we could have seen it, and again... I do understand injuries happen. If I wasn't aware, all I got to do is listen to Penny Hardaway, right? Memphis is dealing with injuries. Uh, UConn's dealt with injuries all year. LSU is dealing with injuries. Duke was without a lottery pick, A.J. Griffin early. So again, it's not excuses for Kentucky, but man, I wish I could have seen them at full strength and I hope to get them back at full strength very soon. Two more kind of big picture thoughts. First of all, We got to credit Bruce Pearl, right? Um, Listen, you know, I'm not going to claim I know the guy well. Uh, I've had him on the podcast a few times. I've always enjoyed my conversations with him. But I saw my buddy Rob Douster from the uh, Field of 68 podcast network, and he said this, and I thought it's so true. He said he has never seen a coach in college basketball more energize a fan base than Bruce Pearl. We see him at the football games. We see him with his chest painted. We see him yelling and screaming. This is dating back to the Tennessee days, and I'm sure, to be honest, he was doing it uh, in his first coaching job at Southern Indiana back in the early to mid-90s. But I have never seen a guy energize a fan base, and again, it goes back to what I said a minute ago uh, in terms of the crowd and the energy on Auburn's campus. It is what makes college basketball great, and it's what makes Bruce Pearl great as a head coach of Auburn basketball. And now you look at what what he has done done having Auburn as the number one team in the country of course two years ago they made a final four three years ago they won the SEC regular season title they won an SEC tournament title in the process but I bring it up to say what he has done at Auburn is absolutely incredible and the energy that he has brought to that fan base is absolutely incredible I'm going to save this conversation for another day. I don't want to uh, crush the hopes and dreams of Auburn fans, but I also saw Rob Dowster reference that if he was Maryland, Maryland, of course, the coaching job is open there. Mark Turgeon was fired a few weeks ago, or he resigned, but he really fired. Rob Dowster said point blank. He's like, I would write Bruce Pearl a blank check. Don't want to go into that, Auburn fans. Not going to ruin your day, but if I'm Maryland, and I need some energy into my fan base, and Maryland is a great coaching job, yeah, I probably agree with Rob. Call Bruce Pearl, make him the offer that he can't refuse. A couple other thoughts before we get out of here. First of all, last one on Kentucky, Uh, Shaden Sharp. We talked about Shaden Sharp on Friday's show. If you do not remember or if you did not listen, Shaden Sharp was the number one high school player in America in the high school class of 2022. He ended up reclassifying and enrolling at Kentucky this spring. Initially, the plan was that he probably wouldn't play when Calipari got there. When when he got there, Calipari said he wasn't going to rush him out. But the dynamics changed last week when we found out that he is, in fact, eligible to at least apply for the NBA draft and a waiver will probably be given to him. The thought was coming to campus that he would not be eligible, although Eric Torres told you all along that he would be eligible. Uh, but the bottom line is obviously now the dynamics with Shade and Sharp have changed. Uh, I saw a lot of Kentucky fans, and I think justifiably saying, um, you know, if, if you were ever going to play him, it felt like on the road against a top 10 team with two of your starting guards out for this game, that was the time. What I would say about Shaden Sharp is a couple things. One, um, and, and, and by the way, I think the obvious correlation for Kentucky fans is if he's going to apply for the draft, he'll probably leave, and it's better to get something out of him rather than nothing at all. But then beyond that, again, like I said, you're down two starting guards at Auburn. If there was ever a time to throw him in, um, Saturday seemed like it. What I would say is, I don't think Calipari's cha- plan has changed on this, and my opinion has not changed on this. If your guys are healthy, I do think that Shaden Sharp, I- I'm not saying he's a bad kid, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying I do think there's a reality that he could mess up the chemistry within the team. I understand the idea that the injuries are mounting and you have to play them, but two things. One... Calipari keeps saying that he got to campus late. He's behind on, uh, you know, drills and understanding offense and understanding defense. On top of that, they said he came in a little out of shape and he's working into game shape. He hasn't really practiced. So my understanding is I wouldn't expect to see him anytime soon. What I would also say is, did make a few phone calls over the weekend, not saying anything is definitive yet, but the sense that I seem to get, not saying that he can't play, but my sense from people who know basketball is that he will not play. I don't know if there is an agreement between Calipari and whoever handles him. I don't know if there's an agreement between uh, Shaden Sharps. uh, The point I'm trying to make is playing him right now, as much as Kentucky fans want it, probably is not fair to the kid, but it could actually hurt him. And this was the consensus that I got calling around, was that you throw him into the fire and he's not ready. If he never plays, fair or not, He could be a top 10 pick just based on potential, but you throw him into the fire and he doesn't look ready. He doesn't look prepared. He doesn't look ready to go. That hurts his draft stock and could cost him millions of dollars. And so because of it, my guess would still be that he is not going to play this season. You can argue if it's right. You can argue if it's wrong. Kentucky fans, you want to talk about it on message boards. I don't blame you. If I was a Kentucky fan, I would be mad too. But my guess is there's probably an adult behind the scenes pulling the strings, making sure that if Shaden Sharp gets out there, that he's 100 percent ready and he is going to be in 100 percent best position to succeed and to build on the potential draft stock that he has, because if he never plays a minute, I think at worst he goes top 10 and maybe top five. But you throw him out there and he's not ready. And so, again, I don't blame Kentucky fans for wanting him. I don't blame Kentucky fans for being frustrated. I would still be surprised if we saw him, and again, that is off of Saturday when they really probably could have used him down two guards at Auburn, but that'll be a fascinating thing to watch going forward. Finally, let me just say this, let me just say this, there was no big takeaway, as I said, and I think my biggest takeaway, if there was one, was, man, I hope we get to see this again. We saw Kentucky come out at Auburn Arena ready to go, focused, locked in, ready to play, ready to compete with one of the, if not the best teams in college basketball. As I said, I think Auburn should be ranked number one. Uh, Are they the definitive clear-cut number one? I don't know if they're the clear-cut definitive number one, but what I do know is they are worthy of the number one ranking come next AP poll. And so all I can say is, I hope we do get to see these two teams at full strength. I hope we do get to see them in the SEC tournament in Tampa. I hope we do get to see them in the NCAA tournament, potentially down the road. But credit to Auburn, credit to Kentucky. Great game, two top five teams. There is no amazing hot take that redefines the world of college basketball as we knew it. We knew both these teams were awesome coming in. I've been saying for 10, 12 days that I believe Auburn should be the number one team in the country. I've been saying for about a month now that I believe Kentucky can play with anybody when they're fully healthy and I do hope we get to see a healthy version of Kentucky here soon. And I hope we get to see him play Auburn again soon. Auburn should be the number one team in the AP poll once the next AP poll is released on Monday. All right. so what I want to do. Great segment, by the way. I'm on fire. What do I do, baby? I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to wrap on college hoops. One more topic that I do want to get to. Uh, you know the college basketball, we talk blue bloods versus new bloods. Auburn, no doubt a new blood as they should be number one in the country. Kentucky, a blue blood. You know who else is a blue blood? Uh, North Carolina. You know who else lost by 22 points on Saturday? Their fourth loss by 17 plus points this season? North Carolina. I want to come back and I want to discuss whether North Carolina made a mistake not doing a real search, not doing the LSU USC football thing and throwing a bunch of money at candidates rather than just hiring Hubert Davis. We'll come back. We'll talk about that. That is next. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to wrap the show, one more college basketball topic. As I said, a relatively quiet weekend in college basketball outside of that mega showdown on the plains between Auburn and Kentucky. But there is one more big thing that I do want to hit on from the weekend. And it is a story that came from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where the mighty North Carolina Tar Heels walked into Lawrence Joel Coliseum, home of the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, And North Carolina, the school of Michael Jordan, the school of Antoine Jameson, the school of James Worthy, the school of Sam Perkins, the school of Brad Doherty, the school of Vince Carter, they walked into Wake Forest and got their butt whipped. Final score, 98-76. to And listen, I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do and say that Hubert Davis is not the right man for the job. I think it's entirely too early to know. But what I will say definitively, and what I truly believe, and what I have believed since the day that Roy Williams retired, North Carolina did themselves no favors by not putting together a real coaching search before eventually hiring Hubert Davis. And to be clear, this is not a criticism of Hubert Davis. This is not to say that he should be fired. This is not to say that he will never win at North Carolina, and there's no reason right now to definitively say that North Carolina has zero chance to continue its success under Hubert Davis. I'm not saying that he is definitively not the guy. But what I will also say is, we now have over a half a season of a sample size, and so far it isn't good. Not saying he can't be the guy. But what I am saying is, so far, it's not very good. First of all, there's the win-loss record. Right now, North Carolina is 12-6 and overall, 4-3 in a very bad ACC. And I know what some of you will say, well, Torres, come on now, 12-6 and isn't that bad. And I don't necessarily disagree. 12-6 and at a lot of places for a lot of coaches in their first year is not bad. But let's not forget, first of all, Hubert Davis inherited a very talented roster. They returned their leading scorer from last year, Armando Baycott, who for the Tar Heels averaged 13 points, 8 rebounds per game. He brought back their second leading scorer, Caleb Love, a former McDonald's All-American point guard, who last year as a freshman averaged 10.5 points, 3.5 assists. They brought back R.J. Davis. They brought back Kerwin Walton. They brought back Leaky Black. Oh, by the way, on top of that, they signed three marquee transfers. Dawson Garcia, former McDonald's All-American. Brady Manick, four-year starter at Oklahoma. And oh, by the way, also Justin McCoy, really good player from Virginia. So it's not as though the cupboard was completely bare when, when Hubert Davis took over. As a matter of fact, I'd say they had the second most talented roster in the ACC. Beyond that, what's also concerning is exactly what I just said, the ACC. It's terrible this year and North Carolina is four and three in a terrible ACC that is trending to get three, maybe four teams in the NCAA tournament if North Carolina cannot turn it around. This is not the ACC of four or five years ago when they got three number one seeds. Virginia, 11 and eight, probably not gonna make the NCAA tournament. Louisville, 11 and eight, talked about Chris Mack, probably not gonna make the NCAA tournament. Syracuse, nine and 10, probably not gonna make the NCAA tournament. Georgia Tech, who won the ACC tournament last year, 7-10, obviously not going to make the ACC, uh, NCAA tournament. And so I bring all this up to say you're 12-6, 4-3 in a bad ACC, and what is the worst ACC of my lifetime? But beyond that, as, they, as the old saying goes, wait, there's more. Beyond that, you have to look at 12-6 doesn't look bad, but look at who they've beaten and look at who they've lost to. Right now, you could legitimately argue that in a terrible ACC, North Carolina's best wins are either at home against a Michigan team that's terrible and arguably along with North Carolina, along with Louisville, along with Virginia, one of the most disappointing teams in college basketball. If it's not Michigan, it's probably a win over that 11-8 Virginia team that, has, that is not going to make the NCAA tournament. Right now, they have not beaten a single team that is projected to make the NCAA tournament right now as of today. But then there's the losses, and this is where you have to be concerned if you are a North Carolina Tar Heels fan. Because, as I said, 12-6 and overall. Here are North Carolina's losses right now at this point in the season. You lose by 9 to Purdue. Okay, that's not terrible. You lose by 17 to Tennessee at Mohegan Sun Arena. You lose by 29 to Kentucky. You lose by 5 at Notre Dame. You lose by 28 earlier this week at Miami. And you lose by 22 on Saturday night against Wake Forest. And so you just look at the win-loss record. 12-6 and doesn't look bad. Zero wins against teams that are projected to make the NCAA tournament. Your only wins away from Chapel Hill are at College of Charleston, at Georgia Tech, and at Boston College, three terrible teams. And then you have, right now, six losses, four of them by 15 points or more, 17 points or more, as a matter of fact. Roy Williams... The season last year that led him to retirement, he had one loss that bad and it came in the NCAA tournament to Wisconsin. And so to me, with the returnees, with the results, that's where you have to be concerned and that is where it goes back to what I opened the segment with. I don't know if Hubert Davis is the right coach. I don't know if he's the wrong coach. First of all, we obviously have recent history that says that North Carolina shouldn't just go get a North Carolina guy if he is not an elite coach. We know what happened when Dean Smith retired. You keep Bill Guthridge, then Bill Guthridge retires. Then you go out and get Matt Doherty, who had one year's head coaching experience because he's in the family. How did that work out? You end up with Roy Williams. And so to bring it back full circle with Hubert Davis, this isn't about Hubert Davis. It is about how he got hired and the fact that North Carolina repeated history and did not go out and do a real search and did not go out and try to get the best candidate that it possibly could, okay? And to be clear, I'm not saying this is the pathway for everybody. I'm not saying if you're Washington State or if you're uh, Texas Tech or if you're Wisconsin or if you're Florida State that you need to go throwing around bags of cash at everybody. But what I am saying is when you are one of these truly great jobs, these jobs that great coaches leave good jobs for to take the great job that is yours – If you're North Carolina, you owe it to your fans, to your alums, to your former players, to the people that have come before you to go out and shake every tree and do everything you can to get the best possible candidate that you can. I think North Carolina's decision not to do that was not only wrong, but I think it looks especially bad based on what we've seen over the last four or five months at college athletics. Because I don't know if you paid attention, I don't know if you listen to this show, but there were some pretty big freaking hires in college football. USC needed a football coach. USC could have played it safe. USC could have said, who are we really going to get? There's not, I mean, we're not. We're good. We're USC. We're this. We're, but who are we going to get to take the USC job? And then they said, oh, Lincoln Riley, here's a bag of cash. What is it going to take for you to say yes to this job? And now Lincoln freaking Riley is the head coach at USC. LSU, it's the same. LSU, we know they made calls on Lincoln Riley. I think, based on reports, that they made calls to Dabo Sweeney. And yeah, they got a couple no's. Yeah, they got a couple guys that said, I'm good here. Maybe if they pursue Lincoln Riley, he said, I'll take this job over your job. But then you know what they did? They called Notre Dame's head football coach and convinced him to leave Notre freaking Dame to come to LSU. Just think about how crazy that is on the most basic level of everything that we think we know about college sports. The winningest coach in the history of Notre Dame football, decided to leave for LSU. And so to bring it back to North Carolina, why did they not do the same? This is North Carolina. This is one of those Cadillac blue blood jobs that you go out and you don't worry about hurting feelings. You don't worry about hurting the feelings of the guys on the current staff. You don't worry about hurting the feelings of alums or boosters or this or that who want this guy, that guy, this guy, that guy. No, you go out and get the best candidate possible. Before we get back to North Carolina, let me give you a quick side story to, I think, contextualize this even further. I remember, uh, many of you know, wrote a book on Kentucky basketball. It's called One and Fun. One and Fun started as a big article that I did for the to- at the time for foxsports.com. It was on John Calipari's first season at the University of Kentucky. And I interviewed everybody involved with that team. I interviewed Eric Bledsoe. I interviewed John Wall. I interviewed Patrick Patterson. I interviewed assistant coaches. I interviewed Orlando Antigua, who's back with the team right now as an assistant coach. And I interviewed John Calipari. And if you remember, John Calipari came to Kentucky from Memphis. John Calipari came to Kentucky from Memphis where he had things rolling. And John Calipari's final four years at Memphis, he made three Elite Eights, one Final Four, and was a player two away from winning a national championship. Four Sweet Sixteens, by the way. And I remember asking Coach Cal, I said, Coach, you had things rolling at Memphis. Why did you leave Memphis for Kentucky? And the answer that he said to me always stuck with me. He said, when Kentucky calls and Kentucky offers you their head job, you don't say no. Why did I pick Kentucky? I picked Kentucky because it's Kentucky. And this isn't a Kentucky segment. This isn't about Kentucky. But it's the same with North Carolina. It's the same with North Carolina. It's one of those jobs. When they call, you pick up. And when they call, and you offer the right amount of money, you listen, and you take it, and you don't say no because it's North Carolina. And I don't know who they could have gotten, okay? I'm not going to sit here and say, well, if they called this guy on this day, at this time, he would have left for North Carolina. I can't say any of that definitively. But what I will say is this. How about Mark Few? Let's just go through some names. Mark Few sounds crazy. He's never going to leave Gonzaga. He's happy there. He loves it. He's got a house right by the lake, and he goes fly fishing and all that stuff. Well, I Google Mark, Mark Few's salary today. Mark Few's salary, according to um, you know, some database, and Gonzaga's a private school, so we don't know exactly how much he makes. Mark Few's salary is $3 million a year. Mark Few's making great money. Mark Few's probably making more money than he ever could have imagined to coach a game that he'd coach for free. But what if Mark Few making $3 million a year if North Carolina comes to the table, Mark Few will never leave, he'll never leave Gonzaga. He's so happy there, he would never leave. Yeah, offer him an eight-year, $80 million deal. Offer him a 10-year, $80 million deal, full, fully guaranteed you're more than doubling his salary. In North Carolina, you know you can do it. Let's see how much Mark Few loves living in Spokane. Or let's see if Mark Few would considering leave, consider leaving somewhere else because he's about to make life-changing money and money that he will then be able to pass down to his kids and grandkids. Three million is great. A hundred million guaranteed is better. How about Jay Wright? Jay Wright reportedly makes really good money. Six million a year, Villanova, he's a legend, multiple national champions. They're going to build a statue if they haven't already. Makes really good money. Again, uh, what do we got to do? 10 years, 100 million? Let's see how much he loves Villanova then. If it's not Jay Wright, I don't know. What about Billy Donovan? Billy Donovan was in in college basketball, leaves for the NBA. He'll never come back to college basketball. He's tired of college basketball. Put $100 million on his plate, see if he says yes. Brad Stevens, put $100 million on his plate and see if he says yes. Now, I know he said no to the Celtics, and I know he said no to the Pacers or the, the, the Indiana Hoosiers. I get all that. But at a certain point, if you're North Carolina, you owe it to your fan base to go after these big names to see if they'll say yes. And if they say no, guess what? Hubert Davis is always going to be there, but you have to do it, and you have to do it, in my opinion, for three reasons. You have to do it, one, because you never know if someone's unhappy where they currently are, and we talked about this a lot during football season, but think about Lincoln Riley. On the surface, you sit there and say, young head coach, super dynamic, cleaning up, winning the Big 12 every year. If he leaves, it's only going to be for the NFL. Well, at some point, somebody got word that maybe Lincoln Riley wasn't happy at Oklahoma, that maybe Lincoln Riley would consider leaving, that maybe Oklahoma moving to the SEC, he knew, I can't win 11 games a year like I'm doing right now if we go to the SEC. Lincoln Riley's situation changed. I talked about it with Dabo Sweeney. Dabo Sweeney is obviously still at Clemson, but there was a point where he at least took a call from LSU reportedly, and I think it was because he was like, these Clemson fans are crazy. I'm going to go 10-3 and this year, and they want to run me out of town. And so you always have to make all these calls, whether it is to Mark Few, whether it is to Jay Wright, whether it is to Billy Donovan, whether it is to Brad Stevens, whether it is to somebody that I haven't even thought of, whether it is to Chris Holtman, whether it is to Nate Oates, whoever it is, because you never know who's unhappy where they are. You never know who's going to say yes. And here's the other thing. North Carolina is a dream job for somebody. might not be a dream job for everybody, but again, I go back to Calipari. Calipari always imagined coaching at one, he, he talks about all the time. He took his UMass team in the early 90s to Kentucky and 1820, 22,000 people, whatever it was, showed up at Rupp Arena and he sat there and said, I want to coach in a place like this someday. And so when Kentucky called, he couldn't say no. And you know what? There's a really good coach somewhere. I don't know who it was. I don't know who it could have been. That at some point they walked into the Dean Dome. At some point they went to a Dean Smith coaching clinic. At some point they got on the phone with Roy Williams and they said to themselves, Man, if I ever had the chance to coach at North Carolina, I sure would. And so, again, to be clear, this is not a criticism of Hubert Davis. I think it's fair to question right now 12 and 6, 4 and 3 in a bad ACC. I would be concerned if I was a North Carolina fan. But this isn't really about Hubert Davis. This is about the fact that they had a chance. They were. They are one of the two or three biggest brands in college basketball. They had a chance to go out and make a, a hire that was going to change this program forever. To go after the biggest, boldest, best names in college basketball, and instead they played it safe. They have Hubert Davis. They're currently twelve and six. And if the NCAA tournament started today, they're not making the NCAA tournament. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Uh, I guess a couple other quick notes from college basketball. First of all, I, I should acknowledge Steve Forbes, the Wake Forest head coach. Awesome win for that guy. Steve Forbes is a really great story. We'll probably get more in depth at some point, but he was, ironically, on the day that Auburn did what they did, he was part of Bruce Pearl's staff at Tennessee that ended up getting let go. I uh, had to go to the JUCO ranks, was at East Tennessee for a few years, but that guy's just a great coach. He coached some junior college ball. I always say if you can win in JUCO, you can win anywhere. He's got Wake Forest at 16-4 and overall in year two. By the way, you know I don't like to pat myself on the back too much, but uh, I shared a tweet the other day from the year that Georgia was looking for its head basketball coach, and they hired Tom Crean. And everyone, everyone in the media, oh, Tom Crean, you got to take Tom Crean if you can get Tom Crean. I said, Tom Crean's terrible. You don't want Tom Crean. And people ask me, well, who would you go after? And I said, Steve Forbes would be my number one choice at Georgia. Georgia passes on him for Tom Crean. In year four at Georgia, Tom Crean is in the bottom of the barrel. Meanwhile, Steve Forbes has Wake Forest rolling at 16-4 and four overall. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's really it for today's episode of the Aerotor Sports Podcast. Fun weekend of college hoops. And again, as the games get bigger, as the stakes get higher, we will continue the conversations of college football on this show. But I hope you enjoyed today's Aerotor Sports Podcast. It is time for me to get out of here. First of all, I want to thank you guys for listening. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music. Thank you all who are subscribed. The numbers in this month continue to be insane. I am blown away by your interest in this show. So thank you for your guys' support, guys and girls, of course. Make sure you're subscribed. If you want to do your boy a solid, rate and review the show. Go on Amazon, go on uh, Apple Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, rate and review the show. Uh, Also, make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod. We, of course, have all of our team-specific pages, Torres on UK for the Kentucky Wildcats, Torres on Arkansas. Thinking about starting a Torres on Auburn, Torres on LSU, Torres on a and If any of you are interested, please feel free to reach out. Uh, just trying to get a feel for what pages might work and what might not. But I do think that's all for today's show. I think it's time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Tor and Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to the North Carolina Tar Heels for not doing a real coaching search. I'm so mad about it. I'm so fired up. That would have been a great month of content if they went after Mark Few and Jay Wright and Chris Holtman and whoever. I got to get out of here. I'll be back on Wednesday.